Uh, good evening, everybody. A, a warm welcome to you all. Uh, I've been asked to announce that the, the Twitter hashtag for the event is uh, hash LSE Grau. That's LSE G-R-A-U-W-E. One of my pet peeves about the UK is the extent to which people operate in silos. There's an academic silo from which academics never penetrate and a government silo and a, a business silo, and there isn't nearly as much interchange between the three as there should be. Um, Paul de Grau is a shining counterexample. Uh, as far as I can see, he leads, and I think continues to lead, at least three lives. Uh, Paul de Grau, the academic, is the John Paulson Chair in European Political Economy at LSE's European Institute. Before coming to the school, he was Professor of International Economics at the University of Leuven in Belgium. Uh, he got his PhD from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he's been a visiting professor uh, at places including Michigan and Pennsylvania in the US, uh, the Humboldt University of Berlin, Tilburg University, and the universities of Paris, Amsterdam, Milan, and Kiel. His research interests that we're going to hear about this evening uh, are international monetary relations, monetary integration, foreign exchange markets, and open economy macroeconomics, um, including his 2010 book on the economics of monetary union, which makes it sound like an extraordinarily rich and distinguished academic career. But then there is Paul de Grau involved in policy. Alongside his academic persona, um, he's been a visiting scholar at the IMF um, um, on and at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, uh, the Bank of Japan, and the European Institute. He's been a member of the Group of Economic Policy Analysis advising President Barroso. And then, just to keep himself busy, um, he was a member of the Belgian Parliament from 1991 to 2003. So... Combining a distinguished academic career with, with high-level policy experience and time as a politician, I, I can't imagine a more suitable appointment to the John Paulson Chair in European Political Economy. So it gives me great pleasure to invite him to give his inaugural lecture on the Eurozone's design features, can they be corrected? And I do hope the answer is yes. <laughs> Paul. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Nick, for these kind words. Um, um, let me say how pleased and honored I am to be here tonight um, in this theater where so many brilliant people in the past have been giving lectures and um, have been influential. I'm told Keynes was here many decades ago and many other uh, economists and, and other people, um, other social scientists, philosophers, politicians, talking in this room, so I feel very honored to be able to do the same tonight. So what I'm going to talk to you about is uh, the Eurozone, the crisis in the Eurozone, and more in particular, the design failures of the Eurozone and how to fix it, if at all possible. So let me start out with a, a short history of capitalism. Um, Capitalism is a wonderful invention. Um, it makes it possible to steer all these individual initiatives, creativity, towards capital accumulation, 
and, and producing uh, all the time more material progress. So it's, it's a great invention. But it's also very problematic in that uh, it's highly unstable. There are periods of optimism that alternate with periods of pessimism, creating booms and bursts in economic activity. And, and as you know, these booms are wonderful, but uh, when the bust comes, many people suffer. And um, the point is that these booms and bursts are really endemic in capitalism. Um, and why is that? Well, I guess the main reason, of one of the main reasons, is that so many economic decisions are forward-looking. You have to forecast when you want to invest or when you want to consume. But the future is unknown. It's dark. We see almost nothing. Well, in fact, we see nothing when we look into the future. Uh, and as a result, we have a tendency to look at each other. Who is going to move? And, and, and that creates a potential for collective movements of optimism when some people start thinking the future looks bright and then they will, this will have a contagious effect on all the others and, and there you are, collective movements of optimism takes over. But the opposite is also possible and we get these self-fulfilling movements of both optimism and pessimism. And as I said, they are self-fulfilling because once you are optimistic, you will invest more. When you are a consumer, you are optimistic, you will consume now rather than tomorrow. And as a result, production will increase, your income will increase. You will look at all this and you will say, I was right to be optimistic. But the opposite is also true when you are pessimistic. You don't do these things, you don't invest, you postpone consumption, and therefore production goes down, income goes down, and then you say, I was right to be pessimistic. So that's the, the beauty of uh, these self-fulfilling movements, but also danger, right? It creates lots of instability. So another way to put that, like, like Keynes did, animal spirits prevail. These movements are driven by animal spirits. Now, all this wouldn't really be problematic if it weren't for the fact that banks are often involved, or the financial system as a whole is often involved, right? And, and then during periods of euphoria, when um, people perceive rates of return to be very high, they want to take a lot of debt so as to profit from what they hope will be high uh, rates of return, and banks jump on this. They will be happy to provide credit, and as a result, we can easily get into a boom that is characterized by excessive debt accumulation fueled by bank credit until the crash comes, and then we get a recession and, 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 and all the misery that is associated uh, with this. So this is, in, in short, what... what uh, capitalism produces as uh, uh, volatility. Um, but we have learned about it, all this, and especially during the 1930s, where we have tried to introduce stabilizing features in an otherwise unstable system. Um, and and, and the, the two stabilizers I want to discuss, because they will appear to be very important in my talk about the Eurozone, are first of all, the, the, the lender of last resort, the central bank as a lender of last resort, and second, the, the government budget 
as an automatic stabilizer. So I will single these two out as important stabilizing features that we have created over time to stabilize an otherwise unstable system. So let me turn to the land of last resort function that has, been, that has emerged uh, over time, right? And, and note the following, central banks were originally created to deal with that, right? Central banks were created to, to deal with the endemic instability in capitalism, not to stabilize price levels. That was not the original purpose of central banks. Now that has become important for central bankers, and in fact, I will argue the ECB has put too much focus on only that, stabilizing the CPI, stabilizing the price of potatoes and carrots, so to say, right? while much more important things have to be done by a central bank. And, and this is to maintain financial stability. And these central banks were given, in a way, a kind of implicit contract with um, both the banks and the sovereign. Right? The land of last resort uh, function of a central bank has two components. One is to be a backstop when you have a run on the banks, right? to make sure that this doesn't lead to a collapse in the banking system. But also, and that is often forgotten, it's there to provide a backstop to sovereigns. And, and the question that I now want to go into is, why is that? Um, why this double task? We, we seem to accept that, yes, the land of last resort for banks, few people have troubles with that. But why for governments? And here this, here's my answer. Banks and governments face a similar problem, right? And that is that their balance sheets are unbalanced. Right? Look at the banks first, because that's most obvious, right? Banks borrow short and lend long, which means that their liabilities are highly liquid, short term. These are deposits right? that can be immediately converted into cash. The assets of banks are long term. These are mortgages, for example, 20 years, 30 years, or investment loans, etc., etc. So very unbalanced structure of balance sheet. And that's key. That's what banks are doing. They, they, they make it possible to create credit this way. Right? But they're also vulnerable because it's sufficient that there is some distrust in banks and that everybody runs to the bank that the whole system collapses. That's why a central bank is necessary um, to, to provide a backstop when that happens. Right? But the same, or something, it's not the same, something similar is true with governments. Look at the balance sheet of governments and then you see it has a similar in, uh, unbalance, imbalance between liabilities and assets. The liabilities of a government are basically bonds. Bonds are highly liquid. You can sell them instantaneously in the market and realize cash. The assets of a government are illiquid. First of all, you have infrastructure, but more importantly, tax claims of governments. Right? Governments can literally take almost all the revenue out of our pockets, but it's an illiquid claim. Governments have to go to Parliament, nuisance, they have to go to Parliament and try to obtain uh, the, the fiat of the Parliament to do that, and that takes time. As a result, we have something similar, right? If, in other words, investors distrust a government, they sell the bonds, and the governments have nothing to liquefy. The assets are too long-term, and that creates a similar problem of a run on a, on a, on a government 
that can produce many problems. I will return to that when I discuss the fragility of, of the, the Eurozone and especially the governments in, in uh, this system. Okay? So that's one aspect. That's one important aspect. So governments and banks have a similar fragility. And the other dimension which is important also for what I'm going to say about the Eurozone, that is that they hold each other in a deadly embrace. Right? If one falls down the cliffs, the other one follows, or pulled down together. In other words, if banks default, governments are in trouble. Why is that? Because governments have to save the banks. They cannot let the banks go down. If government defaults, banks are in trouble because banks are holding all the government debt, or most of it, and therefore they hold themselves in a deadly embrace. Right? And we will, have to, we will try to cut this embrace. That, was, that will be one of the things we want to do. Okay? So that's uh, one stabilizer that we brought in. Governments are as lender of last resort, uh, sorry, a central bank as a lender of last resort, in times of crisis, to prevent panic and fear from destroying the banking system, from pulling down governments. Then another stabilizer that we build in is the government budget as an automatic stabilizer. Right? And, and why is that important? Well, when you have experienced a boom and a crash afterwards, then the private sector wants to deleverage. Right? They have to bring down their debt levels. How do you do that? You have to start saving more. Right? You also sell assets. But let me concentrate on the savings part, because that's quite important today. You, you want to save more, to bring down your debt level. Now, remember the following, very important. If you want to save more, there must be somebody willing to borrow more. Because if you, collectively, you cannot save more, except if somebody is willing to borrow more. And here we get to one of the key problems today, right? So many wants to save more, and nobody wants to borrow. And that creates a potential deflationary spiral. This is the savings paradox. Everybody tries to save more. As a result, there will be less consumption, less production, less income, and therefore you have less means to save from. Except if there is somebody who is willing to take the reverse position. And that's the role of the government in those those moments, right? Borrow more. Increase your deficits, right? During a recession. So I will come back to that because that's key. So, but we have accepted all this and, and we had these stabilizers. But now I come to a key point that will be important for the rest of my talk. All these stabilizers were organized at the national level. The US has it, the UK has it, France, Germany, all these modern states have organized themselves in such a way. We have not done so at the international level, and also not at the level of the European Monetary Union. Right? We didn't do it. And that led to what I call design failures. Right? I will describe them in more detail. What exactly I mean now it is design failures. But you can see in which direction I want to go. Now, we, we have not recognized that in the beginning, mainly because the, the theory that we had, the theory of optimal currency areas, right, was concerned about something very different. That is, um, I call them meteor shocks, independent shocks that can hit countries, right, and how to deal with that. Now, this can happen, 
But that's not the main problem that we have been facing with. And as a result, we have been blinded by a theory that didn't recognize um, this instability of capitalism. It, it, it's as if that did not exist. Right? We, we are just in, in that theory, everything is stable, except that once in a while, a meteor will hit you. And then the question is, what do you do when a meteor hits you? Well, you try to help each other. Sounds good, but there are not that many meteors hitting us. Right? So that's, that's one thing. And, and even today, I must uh, admit that, especially in the north of Europe, these design failures that I'm going to develop further are not really recognized. Because the main diagnosis in northern Europe is that we are in this problem because of government profligacy. And my point is, it has almost nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with where I described this, this movement um, up and down and the fact that we fail to take that into account in setting up um, institutions for the Eurozone. So let me first describe these design failures in the Eurozone in a nutshell very quickly and then I will elaborate a little bit. Right? So I, I see essentially two two dimensions to, this, to these design failures. One is that um, this endogenous dynamics of booms and busts that I talked about, um, they continue to work at the national level. And the monetary in union in no way disciplined this. In fact, many people have expected in the monetary union there will be some convergence there. And of course there will be booms and busts. That's, that's endemic in capitalism. But the monetary union will discipline that so that you get one nice boom and bust for the whole of the union. That didn't happen. In fact, and as I will argue, there is a mechanism in the union that has tended to exacerbate the national divergences in booms and busts. And then the other uh, design failure arose from the fact that the stabilizers that exist at the national level that I have described to you were stripped away from the nation states within the union, without being transposed at the monetary union level. And that left the member states naked and fragile, unable to, do, to deal with these economic disturbances. Now, let me elaborate a little bit on this. Right? So first, these booms and bust dynamics. Right? Um, one of the things we have done in the monetary union is to centralize money. That's completely centralized in the hands of the European Central Bank. All the rest of national economic policies, macroeconomic policies, has been left at the, nation, at the level of the nation state, allowing them national idiosyncratic movements to play their role, developing booms and busts without any discipline coming from the rest of the union. In fact, the, the, by the very fact that we had one monetary policy, one interest rate, we got an exacerbation of these movements, right? Because the ECB has to find one interest rate that will satisfy everybody, but some countries experience a boom, others a recession. As a result, the countries in a boom have too low an interest rate. The countries in a recession, too high an interest rate. So those in a boom get the extra stimulus from the fact that the interest rate is not the right one for them. And for those in recession, it's the same thing, but the other direction, the interest rate is, not, is too high for them, and they're pushing them further down. And, and as a result, we can say that 
the monetary union not only in no way disciplined these national booms and, and bust movements, but exacerbated them. So that's one big problem. Let me show you uh, what, what all this led to. Um, here you, you can see um, on the vertical axis the average yearly inflation differential. Um, this is a difference with the mean, right? During the period of the Eurozone up to the crisis. And on the horizontal axis, you have the relative unit labor cost. So that's a measure that measures the degree to which unit labor costs increase faster or slower than the rest of the Eurozone. And you can see the booming countries here, Spain, Greece, Ireland, experienced significantly more inflation during that period and also an increase and acceleration of their uh, wage costs that led to competitiveness problems then later on. And we had significant divergence. So these are yearly averages, right? But if you, this, this average over a period of eight or nine years, so that accumulates large divergences during um, that period. And that also then led to current account um, divergences. See on the positive uh, axis, I, I show you the current account surpluses of um, Germany here, um, Netherlands, and others. That um, includes Belgium. And then on the, the, the lower part are the deficits. So you can see these divergences up to 2007-2008, where the countries that were booming essentially accumulated current account deficits, and the other ones accumulated surpluses. Right? Uh, and, and I will come back later uh, what happens after um, the, the start of the crisis. So that's one uh, element. We, we, we had this development of booms and busts that were left unchecked and, and, and in fact intensified. And then the, the other dimension to the design failure that I, I already mentioned is the fact that the absence of a lender of last resort uh, exposed the fragility of the government bond markets in the monetary union. Let me elaborate on this because that's quite an important point that I've been stressing. And, and it, it's based on the following idea. When countries become members of the monetary union, the governments issue debt in a currency that uh, they do not control. As a result, they cannot give a guarantee to um, the bondholders that the cash will always be there to pay them out. Contrast this with standalone countries, the UK, right? issues debt in a currency that is its own and therefore has full control over. As a result, the UK government gives a guarantee to bondholders that the cash will always be there. Right? Why is that? Well, suppose at a certain moment the UK government opens the drawer of the cash machine, no pounds anymore, what will the government do? Call in the Bank of England and tell the Bank of England to make the cash, to create the cash. And there's no limit to the money creation capacity of a central bank. The sky is the limit. A central bank can create all the cash necessary to make sure that the government has the liquidity to pay out bondholders. And therefore, the UK government gives a guarantee to bondholders saying, we will always get the cash. The Spanish government doesn't do that, cannot do that. And this creates, then, possibilities of self-fulfilling crisis. The lack, the lack of guarantee can trigger 
a crisis, right? Suppose you distrust the Spanish government, you hold Spanish government bonds, what will you do? You will sell them. The effect of this is to raise the interest rate on the bonds. More importantly, when you sell the bonds, you acquire euros, what will you do with it? You will try to invest it in a safe place, say Germany. As a result, the liquidity is drawn from the Spanish money market, and the Spanish government cannot find the cash to pay out the bondholders. It experiences a liquidity crisis. What happens when you are in liquidity crisis? You are in panic. What do you do when you are in panic? You have to immediately start austerity, raise taxes, lower spending. The effect of all this is that your economy goes down, you get into a recession, GDP declines faster than the debt level. As a result, the debt-to-GDP ratio increases. And then analysts look at this and they say, we were right to distrust that government. Look, their debt-to-GDP ratio is increasing. They are moving into default. That's the Spanish problem today, right? A self-fulfilling crisis. And countries are pushed into a bad equilibrium. So this, I think, happened in Ireland, Portugal, and Spain. I would say Greece is a little different. I mean, there, I, I would argue, Greece was insolvent before I, we knew it. Um, and then suddenly, when the numbers, the true numbers came out, we saw, yes, this country is insolvent. So we have to deal with Greece differently. If you want, later, during the question time, we can come back to this, right? So the, the, my point, then, is the absence of a land of last resort tends to eliminate another stabilizer, the automatic budget stabilizer, right? As I argued, once you're in a bad equilibrium, you're forced to introduce sharp austerity, pushing you into a recession, aggravating the solvency problem, right? And, and the budget type stabilizer is switched off, suddenly. And here you are in the monetary union, you go back like 100 years. We have, over time, we have built these stabilizers, and then you find out you have to switch them off. And you had told people the Eurozone is great, it's heaven, and now it turns out to be hell. So, uh, and then finally, the, the, the other ultimate design failure, if you like, is this deadly embrace, right? The, the, the government is, fra is fragile, and its fragility then leads to banking fragility, because these bankers hold all the government debt, and therefore, when the government goes down the drain, it pulls down also the banks. So let me summarize this, and then I look into the, 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 the question, how do we deal with it? Hmm? So the, the way I would summarize this follows, the Eurozone was left unprepared to deal with endemic booms and busts in capitalism. They, these booms and busts were probably even enhanced because of the existence of the monetary union. And therefore, while nothing was in place to stabilize an unstable system that, pursued, that, that pushed some countries into bad equilibrium and others in good equilibrium. In fact, some of the pre-existing stabilizing forces were switched off. So how to redesign the Eurozone? That's the, the next part of what I want to say. And I will concentrate on three items. The ECB, it's already clear to you what I'm going to say about the ECB, right? Or, uh, what, what it should do, but I will say a few uh, more things about it. Then I will talk about 
the macroeconomic policies to be pursued in a, US, in a system like that when countries diverge, and then finally the long run. There I would start dreaming what to do about a union, fiscal union, political union, and all that. Okay? So let me start with the ECB. It's clear what I've been saying, that is that in standalone countries, right, liquidity crises are avoided because the governments issued that in a currency over which they have full control, and therefore they will force the central bank, if need exists, to provide liquidity. And we can mimic this at the level of the Eurozone, that is, making sure that the European Central Bank is also a lender of last resort, not only for the banks, because that has not, never been controversial. The ECB has not uh, hesitated one moment to step in when banks were in trouble, but has been very reluctant to do so when sovereigns were in trouble. But I've argued that the ECB should also be the lender of last resort in government bond markets for the reasons that I've given. Right? Um, and, and that is key. If it doesn't do that, then we, we come into a situation like we have seen, that is that panic and fear pushes countries into a bad equilibrium and creates these movements downwards that are probably the greatest risk that we now have in the Eurozone. Right? If there's one risk, it is that, that some countries are pushed into bad equilibria, and that will test social and political resolve to maintain such a system. The ECB has finally acted. Right? September 6, the ECB announced that it was willing to buy unlimited amounts of government bonds in its program called outright monetary transactions. I, I've been told that they called this OMT because they didn't want to pronounce the word lender of last resort. Right? <laughs> anyway, it's fine with me, OMT. Right? And, and note, <laughs> note the following. This is a commitment to buy unlimited amounts of government bonds. Huh? That, that's the key thing. Here the, the institution says we are willing to buy unlimited amounts. Before it was saying we will buy a little bit, huh? not too much, and we will run away as quickly as possible, right? And that didn't work. Now it is unlimited amount. And a central bank can do it. It can create all the money of the world. In fact, literally, the ECB could buy all the government bonds in the Eurozone. I'm not saying it should do that. But it, it can, because it can create all the money. And therefore, it has, when it says we will make sure that we don't get these liquidity crises, it is credible. It can do it if it wants to do it. Right? And, and look also at the justification Mr. Draghi gave for, for deciding this. He said, you have large parts of the euro area in a bad equilibrium, in which you may have self-fulfilling expectations that feed on themselves. So there is a case for intervening, to break these expectations. So this was his rationale for doing so, and I think it's the correct one. And, and uh, I think he, he made the right decisions against opposition of many people, but I think he was courageous, and, and um, it had to be done. Now, um, so I, I, I think this was a great decision. Unfortunately, there have been attached some conditions there which were almost inevitable because it's also a political. You also have to 
there's a political dimension to all this. You have to convince many people that this is the thing to do, and, and some oppose it, and therefore the bonds that will be bought by the ECB only bonds up to a maturity of three years, which, from an economic point of view, does not make sense, right? Because now you give incentives to these governments to issue short-term bonds, right? which makes them more fragile. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want that to happen. But that's the way it is. And then also, probably even more important, conditions of even more austerity may be imposed, right? And that leads to the <coughs> deadlock with Spain, huh? Are they going to have to swallow again more austerity? Or is the ECB going to provide a liquidity without additional austerity? That's a, also a, a problematic condition. So it's a necessary, but of course it's not sufficient. Many other things will have to be done. I have to watch my, my, the time. I have some... Pull your headphone on. Uh, is it something? Okay. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I get too enthusiastic, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's right. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of criticism vis-à-vis this idea of the central bank being the lender of last resort. I'm not going to go to all the detail because it would take too much time. Um, but people have said, this is terrible. This will lead to inflation. And it very much depends on how you phrase this. That, that's something I learned, the way you phrase this. The way I phrased it may not immediately lead you to the step, this will lead to more inflation. But suppose I had said, let's have a central bank that will create more money, that will, will allow the, the printing press to operate. Then you would probably say, Wait a minute, haven't we been told that if you create more money, this will lead to inflation? It will not, okay? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> then I, I want to say a few more things about moral hazard, and if I have time, about fiscal implication. But let's, let me first say a few things about inflation. The way I want to do it is by showing you two graphs, uh, two, two lines. Um, one is the money base. The economists among you will immediately uh, understand what I mean. This is the money stock. Let me explain to you. The money base is the money that is created by the central bank. Right? That is uh, mainly banknotes and deposits that commercial banks have at the central bank. And that's their liquidity, right? And that's, the, that's why we call it money base, because it's the liquidity base that can be used by banks then to expand credit, and that will lead to more money, etc., etc. So that's the money base. That's the money stock here. That's the money that matters for inflation. Right? That's also the banknotes we have in our wallet and the deposits we hold at the commercial banks that we use then to make payments with credit cards, with transfers and all that. Right? And that's the one that matters for inflation. Now, look what, look what happened during the crisis. There are many different moments of crisis, but I want to concentrate on this one. This was the end of last year, early this year, banking crisis in the Eurozone. The ECB did not hesitate one moment to provide massive amounts of liquidity to banks, one trillion euro in just a few weeks' time. Right? So what happened? These banks, th that was in the form of deposits at the central bank, at the ECB. What did the banks do with these deposits, with this liquidity that they got from the ECB? Nothing. They, they piled it up, they covered it, they went to sit on it, 
the last thing, the last thing they want to do was to increase credit to business and households. That I didn't want to do it. Why? Because they were petrified by fear, risk averse, and therefore they just wanted liquidity to feel better. <laughs> and, and they didn't do anything with it. And here you can see it very well, right? The money stock didn't increase, and therefore there was no inflationary pressure at all. Now you may say, well, what about the future? It, in, yes, that's an important question. Suppose in the future, good news, the economy moves up again, right? Then, indeed, banks with all that liquidity may start creating a lot of credit and loans, and that may stimulate the economy too much. Isn't there an inflation risk at that moment? And then I'm saying, yes, but we can control it. Central banks can control it easily. Two ways. One is to do the reverse of what they've been doing, namely instead of buying assets, they sell them again, and then take out the liquidity by doing this. Or if they don't like it, they just raise the minimum reserve requirements. They tell the banks, "You thought this liquidity reserve, you could freely dispose it." Forget it. It's a minimum reserve requirement. So you essentially sterilize it there. You cannot use it. So therefore, you can easily control inflationary risks in the future. Today, there is absolutely no risk of inflation, but in the future, potentially, when the economy picks up, this could create inflationary risk. But that is under control, at least if central banks and the ECB are smart enough. And I'm taking the view that these are smart people and that they will recognize these risks. Right? Okay. So that dealt with inflation risk. What about moral hazard? That's a serious problem. So inflation risk, I think, is not a serious one. Moral hazard is a, is a serious problem because it has to do with the fact that when the central bank provides liquidity to banks that are fearful or to governments, in the case of lending of last resort in the government bond markets, it changes the incentives. Right? It may lead governments to say, well, since we get all this liquidity, why would we reduce our budget deficits and debt levels? It's so much more comfortable if we don't have to do that. So that's the moral hazard problem that arises each time somebody gives an insurance to somebody else. Right? So that's a, that's a serious problem. But I think we, we should solve it in the following way. And in order to illustrate this, I will want you to uh, I will want to tell you a metaphor of a, the burning house. Suppose a house is burning. And the firefighters arrive at the house, and they start to—they want to extinguish the fire. And one fireman says, "Stop! Don't do this. You create moral hazard. The owner will get the wrong signal. If we—if we prevent this house from burning, he will start all over again. So let's teach him a lesson. <laughs> we let—we let the house burn down." What would we say about such a, a fire department? We would say it's a lousy fire department, right? A fire department has to extinguish the fire. And the moral hazard that is created, I, I don't deny that there is a moral hazard. You change, you, you don't teach the lesson to this owner who has been re reckless, but you rely on somebody else to do so. The police, the justice, they have to catch the owner, shake him, put him in jail, 
to teach a lesson to the others, right? So you have to separate these things. And the same is true in, in the Eurozone. The ECB is there to provide liquidity in times of crisis. It should not hesitate. It should also not be the policeman. It should not try to combine the two. The policeman function is the European Commission. It has all the legislative powers to do so. Right? We have written it down in treaties. They have to, you, know, you may say, well, I don't trust the European Commission, but why should you trust the ECB? I mean, it's the same problem, right? So we have to separate these things. It, the worst thing that can happen is that the ECB is firefighter and policeman at the same time. Unfortunately, it is today. You see it. The ECB is in the Troika. It's going to all these countries. It's an independent institution, politically independent. But what happens? It goes into the whole political process in these countries and co-decides about which taxes to raise, which spending items to reduce, and it's politically independent, so that doesn't work. Right? An institution that is politically independent should also abstain from intervening, try to be the policeman of the others. So my point there is, yes, there is a moral hazard issue, but let's separate <coughs> the, the problem in the sense that the ECB should provide liquidity, should not add conditions to this, because then it becomes a policeman again. It's not the ECB that should do it. European Commission, with all its apparatus of excessive de deficit procedure, should try to contain moral hazard problems. I'm not saying it's easy, but that's the only model, I think, that we can accept. I, I, I will skip the fiscal consequence, except if you uh, want me to come back to this. Um, I'm just making the point that the central bank should not worry about making losses. A central bank can make unlimited losses. And therefore, people say, well, if you buy these bonds, then you take a risk as a central bank, because these bonds can lose value. I'm saying, so what? A central bank can lose money. Why is that? It's the only institution that cannot default, right? because if it has negative equity, it just prints the money. And uh, therefore, a central bank should not worry about this. In fact, it should worry about financial stability. And if that means making losses, then I say, losses are good. A central bank should not be a profit-maximizing institution. Then we can use other people. We can use the, whatever, the Deutsche Bank. Or they, they, we put them there and say, run the show. No, we want an institution that does not pursue profit as its maximum, but its objective should be financial stability. And if that leads to losses, so be it. Okay, medium run. So this is the central bank. The ECB is key, and, and as I said, the ECB has been very important in, in, in taking away the existential fear that existed in the Eurozone up to early September. What about macroeconomic policies? Here we have a big problem today. I think this is today the biggest risk that we face. It has to do with the fact that the whole of the macroeconomic adjustments now are pushed, are put on on the shoulders of the deficit countries, the southern European countries. Right? They have to do the adjustment. Here I show you the relative unit labor costs. Now you may have seen these pictures before. Each slide is the unit labor cost of one particular country relative to the unit labor cost of the rest of the Eurozone. So if a line goes up, it means that unit labor costs increase faster in that country. So these are the southern European countries. And you can see that prior to the crisis, it was all going up losses of competitiveness. Since then, 
they've started, most of them have started a reverse movement. But it's the hard part. We call it internal devaluation, bringing down your wages and prices. But that produces a recession. It produces a recession, a downturn um, in tax revenues of the government, increasing deficits, um, debt to GDP ratio that exploded. That's what I was talking about earlier. So, but the whole adjustment is pushed on them. What do the, the other countries do? Nothing. Right? Here I show you the unit labor costs of the northern European countries. Same interpretation. You would expect them to do the reverse, right? To make it life easier for the southerners. Let's inflate our economy a little bit. Let's raise prices and wages a little, so that these other guys in the south have an easier time to bring down theirs, right? Without as much suffering. But they don't do it, right? <laughs> and as a result, of course, this leads to a deflationary bias because the adjustment that is necessary, there's no doubt that this adjustment has to be done. But this adjustment is done in one way, asymmetric, the deficit countries. And this introduces a deflationary bias in the system that brings down the whole of the Eurozone and is now responsible for the double dip. Right? This, was, this is the growth rate of GDP in the Eurozone. Here you, you see 2008-2009, the big recession. Then we went out of this, but now because of this way of pushing uh, asymmetric adjustment, we will go back down in a double dip recession that will test the solidity of the Eurozone, not only economically, but politically and socially. Right? So that's, I think, the, the biggest risk we face today. Right? Because in some countries, it will not be accepted. Right? Uh, all this leads, to, in some countries, to rates of unemployment that are unheard of, right? and that, that people will just not want to continue to bear. Uh, and you will not be able to say all the time, well, it's because of the euro. At some point, people will say, but if that's the case, we don't want the euro. Right? That's the kind of reaction that you see now in some countries. So how to do it differently? Well, a symmetric microeconomic policy. And the way I would do it is the following. Again, I distinguish between the north and the south. In the north of Europe, I show here the, the government debt ratios. Right? And you can see that most of the north has stabilized the, the debt-to-GDP ratios, right? Those in the south, no. They're on an explosive path because the economy is collapsing, right? Not, not because they are somehow, that's the perception in the north, oh, but these are profligate governments, undisciplined governments. No, they've been pushed in a bad equilibrium that leads to this explosion of the debt-to-GDP ratios, right? But now, of course, they are condemned to go on with austerity. You have, they, they cannot do much, except you may want to spread it over more years. But the point that I'm making down is since the North has been able to stabilize its debt-to-GDP ratio, why not tell them, slow down with austerity? Just try to keep your debt-to-GDP ratio at the same level, and that allows you to stimulate your economy. When you work that out, you find that you can have some deficit, right? Don't try to balance the budget, because that will bring down your debt to GDP, and that's not necessary. Remember this symmetry requirement. Some countries have to deleverage the South, bring down their debt levels. They can only do it if others are willing to raise their debt levels, or at least not to try also to bring down their debt levels, because that creates a deflationary spiral in which we are now turning, and we really have to stop this. So that's it. That's what I want to say about the... the the, the macroeconomic policies. Let me finish now with, with dreaming, right? the long run, <laughs> towards a fiscal union. 
um, ideally, we, we would like a fiscal union, right? We would like to complete the monetary union with, with the fiscal union. This, basically, the, the monetary union is unfinished business. We have started something, and we have failed to do all the other things that were necessary, in particular a fiscal union. What does a fiscal union do? It allows you to consolidate debt levels, right? So that each of these individual governments is not as fragile. Um, and and you, ca you, can, you can basically make it less fragile, right? And, and, and you avoid that the individual countries are forced into bad equilibrium and, and default. And fiscal union also can, can do some, introduce some solidarity, right? Some um, automatic transfers. Of course, now in some countries you, you cannot even pronounce the word transfer, right? It's, it's terrible. While I'm maintaining that if you are a union, you should be able to help the other out, right? Suppose you, you marry and you tell your partner, if you're in trouble, I will not help you. <laughs> don't, don't count on me, right? because this will create moral hazard and all that. <laughs> so, will such a marriage last? The answer is no, right? It will not last. So every union needs this kind of solidarity. Of course, you also need discipline. Right? I'm not denying that there should not be some control mechanism because moral hazard is a factor of life. But you need a balance between the two. Right? And, and the, 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 the fact that in the north of Europe, fiscal union is interpreted only as more discipline. Right? When, when in Germany you say fiscal union, I say, yes, we want fiscal union. What is fiscal union? More discipline. And I'm saying, well, that's only half of it. The other half is also helping each other out. But if you don't want to do it, then you shouldn't have a monetary union. So that, that's the dreaming part, but uh, I'm, I'm aware that uh, full fiscal union is so far away that uh, we have to try to do something more modest. Here are some suggestions. Um, I, I, I would think that the partial pooling of debt is, is something that uh, could... Could, uh, sorry, help in reducing the fragility, right? And then here are many different proposals that have been made about creating a euro bond, and that can structure, strengthen the, the eurozone structurally, right? We cannot always ask the firefighter to come and fight the fire. There are too many fires, so you really have to do something structurally, so there are fewer fires, and, and that's the, the idea behind uh, consolidation. Right? A banking union is key, right? To to cut this deadly embrace between the sovereign and the banks, right? so that we can, in fact, when, when some countries like Ireland and Spain now have problems with their banks, that we, the resolution of that and, and the cost of resolving that crisis is borne among the whole of the union. Right? Again, the idea of some solidarity. We had an agreement in June to do that, but now countries are pulling out of this, right? so, and that's uh, very unfortunate. But that's a key element to move forward, right? Uh, and, and all that also implies that a banking union, in fact, implies a fiscal union. Right? It's not only the fact that we centralize supervision, but also it means that we create an authority there with taxing power that in times of crisis can act quickly. Right? And I don't think we have it. The ESM today 
first of all, has insufficient resources to do so, but also has the wrong governance structure where countries maintain a veto power and therefore in times of crisis this will not work. Right? We, need, we need, in other words, t some transfer of sovereignty um, to, to, to achieve that. More political union is necessary to make a Eurozone sustainable in the long run. Let me conclude. So the, the recent decision by the ECB to act as a lender of last resort, I think is a major regime change for the Eurozone. It has significantly reduced existential fears that slowly but inexorably were destroying the Eurozone's foundation. So that has been a key positive move. But it's not it's, although it's necessary, it's not sufficient to guarantee survival. Signals must be given that Eurozone is here to stay. Right? We cannot achieve fiscal union in the foreseeable future, but we can give signals today that we want to go in that direction. Right? Uh, for example, a partial pooling, you start small, right, that ties the hands of individual countries, is such a signal. You tell people we are serious in sticking together. Right? Um, symmetric macroeconomic policies right, organized today would also be an important signal. If the north of Europe is saying, yes, we want to stimulate your economy so that you in Spain and Italy and Portugal can get out of your trouble easier, that would be an important signal that convinces people this is something that is here to stay. Right? In the end, we will need a political union. Right? Let me put it this way. The euro is a currency without a country. To make it sustainable, a European country has to be created. And so we have a choice here. If we want to keep the euro, then we have to create a country. If we say we don't want a European country, then we have to say goodbye euro. Thank you for your attention. I can remember when a former colleague of ours who became a member of the House of Lords uh, was in discussion and someone was pointing to the number of LSE, ex-LSE people in government in this country and others. And the person said to this ex-colleague, um, soon he said, LSE will be running the world. And our colleague in the House of Lords replied, which, he said, is entirely as it should be. <laughs> and I think we've had a wonderful example tonight about which is entirely as it should be. Um, I particularly like the idea of the European Central Bank um, printing money as a cuddly nest to make banks happy. I think this is a, a form of macroeconomic innovation that uh, uh, many of us will carry away. Um, fortunately, there is time for questions. Please would you, there's, there's roving microphones, please would you wait for a mic. If you could keep your interjection short and ask a question rather than make a long political speech, that would be wonderful. Um, please would you say who you are and we'll take questions in, in clusters of, of two or three. So who'd, who'd like to start? There's one down there. Uh, I'm Sony Kapoor. I run a think tank called Redefine, and I'm a visiting fellow at the European Institute. Uh, Paul, you mentioned uh, the inappropriateness 
of the average inflation target, which basically means that what you have is essentially a pro-cyclical monetary policy on the upside and the downside that you're permanently locked into. And a second issue, uh, the deflationary bias, because you have the larger, older, more mature economies, which are growing, growing slower, and they carry the larger weight than the average inflation rate. So there is an implicit um, deflationary bias. And a lot of what you address has addressed the crisis management aspect of uh, problems with the Eurozone. But what about peacetime problems? How do you tackle these uh, structural flaws during peacetime? Lord Little. Uh, Ro Roger Little, will debt write-offs be required in countries other than Greece? Um, and if, if lots of debt write-offs are required, does that mean that in the rich countries, I'm sorry, I'm speaking as a non-economist, does that mean that in the rich, rich countries will have to suffer a lower standard of living than they otherwise would? I mean, in other words, does a debt write-off mean a transfer that ordinary people will actually experience? Thank you. Ian Beck from the European Institute. <clears throat> Paul, a, a different reading of what you've presented to us is that monetary union was all a huge mistake. Would that not be a solution far simpler than this fanciful one of going for a, a federal Europe, which you seem to be implying in your last slide? And as a rider to that, do you have any intention of joining the UK Independence Party? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. These are very uh, pertinent and sharp questions. So let me start with, with Sonny's um, point, which is a very important one. Um, so I've, as I have argued, there is something unstable in, in the system in that... Uh, by having one uh, interest rate, you, you tend to be pro-cyclical, um, intensifying the boom in the booming countries and the recession in the recession countries. And I haven't said much about how to deal with that in peacetime, like you said, right? Yeah, I think it's very difficult to do it, right? Because that's the nature of a monetary union. You have only one instrument. And in, if all these countries had maintained their independence, they would have been able to deal with it. But that's out of the question. But there are ways to deal with it. I mean, there, there are some instruments that can be used, and, and my favorite ones would be to use microprudential uh, control at the level of countries. Of course, the ECB as a whole can do that. Let me give you an example. Um, in Spain, we had during the pre-crisis period um, a bubble in the real estate market. Well, at that moment, you can introduce some microprudential control, for example, like... Um, loan-to-value ratio. You lower the, the loan-to-value ratio. You tell people who want to buy a house and borrow from the bank that, uh, well, they will have to bring to have their own money in there too, say a, a ratio of 80% or 70%, which means that they have put, put down 20 or 30%, and that reduces the boom. So these are the kinds of instruments that one can use, but of course one should have no illusion um, that one can completely eliminate this, right? Uh, I think we will have to, to, to move towards more union. Let's not forget that in the United States, there are also wide divergences across the United States in terms of booms and busts. Huh? We, it's, uh, the U.S. history is full of local booms and busts. Um, 
that you can try to mitigate, but you can never fully um, eliminate, and that then creates the need to, to deal with what happens afterwards, right, with the crisis afterwards, yeah. Um, question of Lord Little. Um, the, I think, well, the way I would like, on the first question, right, will we need that write-offs in other countries apart from Greece? Um, the way I would put it is as follows. Um, Greece, as I argued, is insolvent, and their write-offs are inevitable. An institution that is insolvent, you have to restructure the debt. The same with Greece. What about Spain, Portugal, etc.? Here I would argue that these countries are solvent, but have been illiquid, through the mechanism that I described, but now are in danger of becoming insolvent. And if we wait much longer, then we will, say, we will all say, of course Spain is insolvent. And we have to write off the debt. Because once a nation is insolvent, you have to write off the debt. And that brings me to your second question. What does it mean for the lenders? Well, they will make a loss. Um, let's put it, you can also um, talk about the problem in, in the following way. What has happened in the past? There was a boom in countries like Spain, Ireland, uh, Greece which led to overspending and borrowing, excessive borrowing, foolish behavior. But for every foolish borrower, you have a foolish creditor. Right? It takes two to tango. Right? <laughs> and therefore, if the borrowers get into trouble, then the lenders will have to bear the loss. And one of the strange things when, I, when I'm in Germany, I talk about this, there is a lot of nervousness. Huh? Um, and then, <laughs> then I say, but what about the banks? How do you feel about banks? Right? And then there's no nervousness. Then the, the, the action is, of course, the banks give, in a foolish way, too much credit. They should be punished. Right? No, no problem. Most people will accept this. Huh? But if it is a whole nation that has, in fact, behaved like an automobile salesman, right? you know, automobile salesman, they sell a car by giving credit to the buyer. That's fine as a business model for a while. But if you do that too much, some of these buyers may not be able to repay you, and you are also in trouble as a salesman. Do you have sympathy with the salesman? I, I would say the salesman took a risk, and Germany took risks, right? What was the business model of Germany? Well, the same as the automobile salesman. <laughs> Lots of goods and services that it wanted to sell to the south of Europe. How? By giving credit. Right? Now these people, uh, problems we paying, then I'm saying, sorry, shouldn't have done that. You took risks and now you pay for it. And there the answer is yes, in that case. They will suffer um, a loss of, of, of wealth. Yeah? Then I come to the third question, Yen, Beck, um, robust monetary union, not a huge mistake. And then I'm saying yes. In fact, I, I said it not since the crisis, but I said it already in the 1990s. I wrote a book, a textbook on monetary union, which, where I warned, warned uh, about the risk that we were taking in setting up the monetary union because it was unfinished and we first had to finish this, right? So this was my analysis then. Uh, of course, then it started, and then I, I got kind of midlife crisis. Right? 
then I was I faced the problem, what shall I do now? Shall I continue to shout from the sidelines? It was a bad idea, it was a mistake. I didn't do that. And then I, I, I didn't change my view, but I said, well, since we are in there, let's try to make it work. And the conditions to make it work are the ones that I talked about, the things that we had not done, so therefore that we should do. Now, you may say, I'm extremely naive, and I had the feeling that in your question there was this undertone. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I take it back. Um, but yes, I mean, um, maybe you can say it's something that... Now I'm saying, well, let, let's try it. Essentially because I think that while it was easy to enter the monetary union, it's much more problematic to get out. And it creates so much uncertainty about how to do that. Can we control the processes? It's not only financial. If it were only a financial problem, then I would say, yeah, okay, we probably can do that. But this is also social and political, right? The upheaval that will be created. The risk for maintaining the European Union, I mean, there is a connection there, right? The Eurozone, if, if that implodes, if countries massively leave, then will the European Union stay there unchanged? I'm not sure. So that's why I'm saying let's give it a final try. Um, so it's a little bit out of desperation, and I'm saying let's do it, and I will certainly not join the Independence Party. <laughs> Let's take some questions at the top. There was a question. One, two. Um, hello, I'm Antonio from the European Institute. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you, what, what do you reckon would be the adjustment that the, in, in relative prices that Germany should have, that, that the north of Europe should, should have to do to correct those uh, imbalances that seem to be uh, lead to nowhere, uh, would it be a five percent, ten percent? In in what uh, and how much time could they do that? And and do you think they would be willing to do that at all? Um, what do we do until then? Thank you. A uh, very smart talk. Uh, certainly it was very uh, enlightening. <clears throat> I just say that the problem is of political will and the so political and social will. Uh, blueprints for, for making, making the euro work is there. Yours is one and others are also there. What, is the, what are we short of this political will and social will? Um, I think we need to be told what will be the consequences if you don't make it work. So uh, maybe that will help us to develop that sense of solidarity, our sense of political will to keep it together. Thank you. Hi, uh, thank you very much for a wonderful talk. <laughs> Over here. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> just would like to get your views on the Bank of England recent uh, foregoing of the kind of coupon payment uh, to give it back to the Treasury. Well, what, what do you make of that? And there's, there's one more question up there. Let's take that fourth one and then we'll <coughs> let Paul answer. I have a quick question. Um, in looking at uh, the situation, I know you simplified it, and it's much more complex than it is, but 
What should other countries, maybe like Turkey, for example, who want to join the Eurozone or the, the Euro, what should they consider and um, what does it mean for the future? I mean, well, how will other countries look to this and say, okay, well, good idea, bad idea? Okay, thank you. Um, so let me go into these questions. Thanks a lot for these uh, very good questions. Um, Antonio, um, what changes in prices are necessary in the north? And will they be willing to do so? Um, well, I, I think um, when you look at the, the data that I showed you, um, the southern European countries have lost something like 10 to 20 percent um, in, in competitiveness over time. Some have already corrected a lot, like Ireland, for example, is, is almost back in equilibrium now. Huh? But others have to do um, more. So they certainly have to add something like 10 to 15 percent. Um, so they can either go down 10 to 15 percent, or you have the others doing half of the, the work, so to say. And then I would say, well, something like uh, 5 to 10 percent extra price adjustments, uh, wage increases in these countries spread over two or three years would, would probably be necessary. But that's only part of the story, of course. Uh, you, you also need to do something with the budget, right? Because the relative prices, relative price changes are important, but they work slowly. It takes time for these price changes to affect decisions of exporters and all that. While an infusion of, of uh, purchasing power by the government uh, has a quicker effect. So that will also be necessary to, to, to do in northern European countries. Are they willing to do so? I, I don't see much willingness to do it, and, and it puzzles me. I have one interpretation. It has to do with language. You, you probably know this. Um, in, in Dutch and German, um, they use the same word for debt and guilt. Um, schuld in German, schuld in Dutch, right? Which has the following psychological effect. Each time a Dutchman or German issues debt, he or she feels guilty. And that creates a psychological, emotional problem. But I'm, I'm not joking. It's, it's really something that runs very deep and, and makes it possible for governments, like in the Netherlands recently, to win an election by promising austerity. Um, and note the following. Of course, in Dutch, you don't use the word austerity. You use a, a, a kinder word. With, with, and in fact, you, you, you call it savings, right? The government is saving, which has a positive connotation. So this is the, the background, but that's only one part. I, I don't want to put too much emphasis on this, but that is certainly something that makes it difficult. It's difficult to go out in Germany and to say, now you have to do a stimulus. Maybe people say, what, more debt? Mehr Schuld? Um, yeah, there was a question there um, about what well, it relates to the previous one. What, what are the consequences if, if we don't make it work, right? If, if, we, if we allow the system to go down the drain? Um, I must say here that uh, I don't have a good answer. I mean, this is something where um, this, this has dimensions that exceed the, the economic dimension, right? Um, because when countries pull out or well the system 
includes, this will have not only economic consequences, but also social and political consequences right? um, that I must say I don't understand well. Uh, I don't know how or whether we can control these. Um, the ECB certainly will not be able by liquidity injections to control a social revolution in Spain, right? Uh, and, and, and so that leads me really um, in a situation where I, I, I'm saying uh, I, I, I really don't know what, how bad the consequences could be. And that's why I continue to, to say uh, out of despair, let's try to make it work. On the Bank of England, so the, the, the UK Treasury um, had a holdup on the Bank of England, right? Uh, Recently, Well, it shows the point that I'm making. When the uh, sovereign is in trouble, the central bank will have to obey. Right? We have created central banks that are politically independent, but it shows in moments of crisis like now that there is a limit to the independence of a central bank. And I would say rightly so. I mean, of course, it's important to have an independent central bank right, to avoid that politicians to the stuff of printing money and all that. But in times of crisis, you have to override this. Then the, the sovereign will not allow to um, go down the drain and will force the central bank to, to help him out. Um, now, that is not exactly what has happened today with the Bank of England, but it, it shows the same um, phenomenon, right? That in times of crisis, we set aside the independence of the central bank. It shows, therefore, also the limits of uh, what political independence <coughs> means. And then finally, about um, Turkey in, in the Eurozone. Um, I think it would be a very bad idea for Turkey to try to get in the Eurozone today, right? let alone, uh, well, maybe in a few years. But, but first of all, it will have to enter the European Union, which uh, will not be easy. Um, there I would be all in favor. I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of opening up markets and, 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 and I think that would be good for, for all of us. Um, but whether Turkey should join the Euro, there I would have my doubts. I wouldn't do it. Um, it would be better if Turkey gets into the European Union and then it would be better that it decides not to join the Euro um, too early, if it still exists. We've got time for one more round of questions. One, two, three. Hi there. Um, just a quick question regarding um, the growth rates that you have in, for example, Spain, Portugal, uh, Greece, Italy, and relating that with Britain. Uh, the first countries... Um, the growth rates, you have rising public debt, you have uh, um, return to recession, double dip. Um, also in the UK, we have basically exactly the same cycle going on. Yet the difference between the UK and Europe is that we have our own currency, while in Europe you have a united currency. Is the ECB really that influential in influencing growth and development as you're putting it through this presentation?
Hello. Uh, are you happy with the uh, inflation targeting of the ECB uh, historically and today? Um, do, do you feel that the inflation targeting should have been higher or should be higher? Hello, thank you. Uh, you talked about the importance of the Commission in taking a new role regarding the ECB you know, in terms of uh, looking at the role. Given the, uh, given the fact that there are already rules in place, for example, to deal with government debt, to look at Greece in terms of the treaties, and they seem to have failed, what would your, what would your suggestion, although it's talking about politics and law, to, to, to remedy that? Do you have any suggestions at all? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, let me take uh, the, the, f the first question. Um, I, I know maybe I've created um, um, a misunderstanding. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that the ECB can really stimulate um, the economy in a, in a very significant way. The role of the ECB as a lender of last resort is to prevent disasters that leads to deflation. That's what you want to do. You want to prevent that the economy uh, gets into a downward spiral, right? and then you have to do it. That doesn't mean that a central bank can easily stimulate growth. So I want to take away that possible misunderstanding. Right? But it remains true that the ECB must do it. Right? It must uh, avoid deflation. In fact, I'm in really in good company. Milton Friedman. You will not believe this, but Milton Friedman when he criticized um, the Federal Reserve of the 1930s, his main point was that the Federal Reserve at that time had failed to be the lender of last resort and to provide massive injections of liquidity. And as a result, allowing something that was initially a recession to become a depression. Right? Um, so I'm saying the same as Milton Friedman. Um, what about inflation target of the ECB? Um, yes, I think um, this, I would have put a higher um, target. In fact, I've, right from the start, I've argued that the 2%, um, and in fact it was asymmetric, right? it's not more than 2%, that this was too tight, given that there are these differences between countries. And, and I have argued that uh, the inflation target should be put somewhat higher, like about 3% or something. And the, the strange thing, you can see how things can change so quickly. Um, Germany, before it entered the Eurozone, say, say from the end of the Second World War until the start of the Eurozone, has had an average inflation rate of more than 3%. And then we entered the Eurozone, and we became all convinced that it would be terrible to have an inflation rate above 2%. And the great example was Germany. Germany is the, this, the symbol of stability. Well, Germany had more than 3% for 40 years. And everybody said it's a great country in terms of monetary stability. Then we had the Eurozone and we said 3% is terrible. It will lead to hyperinflation if we move our target to 3%. So it has been excessive. It, it's very difficult to understand. So, but I say, yes, uh, this should be a little higher, but unfortunately this will not happen. I'm doing an impact case study, maybe this may change. <laughs> <laughs>
Sorry, this was an inside joke. <laughs> Finally, uh, the, the, yeah, what do I have to suggest for the Commission? That's an important question. Um, um, so my argument has been that the, the Commission has the, the, the power to do so, right? Um, but, but it should also do the right diagnosis. And it seems to me that uh, it has not done the right diagnosis. It has been too much influenced by this idea that we are in this crisis because governments have been profligate. Right? We are not in this crisis, except for the case of Greece, we are not in the crisis for that reason. We are in the crisis for the other reason that I explained. Right? And this has not been enough in the mindset of the European Commission. And as a result, it is going all around Europe today saying that, well, um, if you have a recession and, and your budget deficit increases because of the recession, you are away from the target, so therefore introduce more austerity. That's not the right thing to do. Um, so I think they should change that. Um, they are trying now. I'm, I have to be um, fair. They are trying to do that, but I think they have been doing that too late, and they should certainly now go out to the northern European countries and, and tell them, Stop trying to balance the budget. Right. Well, before thanking Paul, may I thank you all for coming and for some terrific questions. This has been a, a wonderful, rich array and a, a humorous one as well. There's been talk about incentive compatibility. We've had lessons in etymology. We've had lessons in political economy. Uh, Almost any idiot can give a complicated lecture that nobody understands, but to take really complex things and make them simple requires real understanding, and I think we've had a, a wonderful example of that tonight. So uh, on behalf of all of you, Paul, thank you very much indeed. That was wonderful.